I'm grateful that I live in a place where I'm forced to take seriously what it means for me to be a disciple. It's not always the case, depending on where you are. Some places, it's easy to just sort of cruise along the social highway and surrounded by people who look and speak and behave mostly like you do. And even if we're different on the inside in those sorts of places, the culture is such that we don't ever have to explain the differences between us. But here, in Portland, in our city, it's not quite like that. When people discover how I occupy my time on Sundays, they're not sure what to say next. Why, maybe, is a decent response. A few days ago, a friend of mine told me about a conversation he had here with a Portlander who was so outraged by his views of abortion that she told him he has no business living here. He should leave the city, she said. So much for fair-minded liberalism, right? Being a disciple of Jesus Christ in a city where most people aren't, and in many cases scorn everything related to Jesus, forces me to think about what it means for me to be a real, everyday disciple of Jesus, right here. What does that look like? Our parable from Jesus is brief and simple. Most of them are. I admit that both that both delights and annoys me, because as someone called and compensated to share words on a regular basis, my supreme example of a preacher is one who didn't preach for very long. And I am rebuked. Now, he did get a little long-winded in the Sermon on the Mount, but even that is only 2,200 words in English and probably took him about 10 to 15 minutes to preach. So this sermon from our reading today, preached to the clergy and the crowd, the church crowd, took about 60 seconds. A man had two sons. He tells them to go work in the field. The first says, heck no, I won't go. But lo and behold, the father looks up later and he's out in the field, working. The second one, who was no doubt the first born because he wants to please the father, says, yes, I would love to go out there, Father. There's nothing that gives me greater joy than to bless you and to work hard and to provide for others. And two hours later, the polite son is still lying in his bed, staring at his phone, scrolling social media, and never quite makes it to the venue. Now, Jesus says, you educated erudite, intelligent, upper-class clergy. Pay close attention. Which son, which son pleased the father? The first who said no then went, or the second who says yes then didn't? Can you hear the timid mumble from the church folk? First. Then, Jesus applies his sermons. Have you ever bothered to notice how Jesus applies the sermons? By today's standards, he is straight up bullying his audience. 
He tells them that the scum of the earth are better off than they are. And if the scum are getting into the kingdom of God, what does that make you, priests, elders? This is Jesus, the Savior of the world, the baby born in the manger. I really don't think Jesus would last in today's church. I'm guessing if he preached to us that way, we'd do to him pretty much what the elders and crowds did to him 2,000 years ago. Now, we might not crucify him, we're civilized people and all, but we certainly wouldn't give him the pulpit or invite him into the Christian conference circle. Here's what Jesus is saying in this 60-second sermon. You people are all talk. And obeying the Father has little to do with talk and a lot more to do with active obedience. In other words, you Pharisees, you self-proclaimed shepherds of God's people, you love to talk and argue the finer points of theology, but you never take that critical step. The words don't translate to deeds. Now, if you've read the Gospels at all, this may sound strange to you because the Pharisees and the elders and the priests were always confronting Jesus about he didn't how he didn't follow the details of the law like they did. Of course they were taking action. Of course they did deeds. They did lots of religious activities. But there's something about their action that's so completely counter to the will of the Father that Jesus' story implies it amounts to just empty words. All that religious teaching that they did, all the public displays of prayer and the fasting and the resting on the Sabbath and the reading of the scripture in the synagogue, all that strict observance of this and of that. And Jesus thinks none of it amounted to obeying the Father. Mere words and empty words at that. Does it make you slightly nervous that we would go through religious formalities and that God might think it was empty and worthless? See, words in God's economy are only worthwhile if the result is the sorts of deeds that God does. You may have noticed that the way the Gospels organize the life of Jesus is by what he does, much more than by what he says. Even St. John, who records much more of Jesus' words when he summarizes his book in chapter 21 of John, tells us, and there are also many other things that Jesus did. You would think he would say, said. But he said, there are many other things that Jesus did, which, if every one of them were written down, I suppose not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written. The critical thing for John, even John, who gives us so much of what Jesus said, was here's what he did. These are his deeds. Now, 
None of this means that what we believe about Jesus and what we believe about ourselves in the world doesn't matter. I don't mean to say that. It does matter what we believe about God. But it must be the sort of belief that moves us to follow Jesus and to do the kinds of acts that amount to more than empty words. Okay, let's get practical, shall we? Jesus was a very practical guy. I won't get too practical. He talked a lot about money and stuff like that. I won't do that. But I'm just struck by the simplicity of what it means to be an everyday disciple of Jesus, at least from his perspective. Just go work in the field, he says. Just go back to your village and tell people what God has done for you, he tells the demoniac in the tombs. That's it. Just go tell them. Just pronounce peace on people, anyone really, and if they need help, help them. Just do that. Just love each other. And keep loving each other. Even when the pressure gets to us and we lose control and we become a real pain to everyone around us, just love each other. And if you do that, others will notice and they will know that you're my disciples. If you love each other. So do that. Just forgive your enemies. Easy peasy, right? If you want to be an everyday disciple, just forgive them and pray for them and love them because that's what I've done for you. Now go do that. Nothing about this is terribly complicated, right? And Jesus acts like it's no big deal to follow him these behaviors. It might be hard for us, but Jesus doesn't act like it's going to be. Everyday disciples are the ones who hear the commands of Jesus and they just obey them in real life, in everyday situations. On another occasion, Jesus was challenged by an expert in the law who wanted to know how to have eternal life. It's a good question. The answer Jesus affirmed was the two great commandments hanging behind us here. And the ones we hear each week at the beginning of the liturgy. But then Luke tells us, but he wanted the lawyer to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus then tells the story about the priest and the Levite and the Samaritan. And he asks, one of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy. And then Jesus told him, do you remember? What did he say? Go and do likewise. That's it. Just go and do likewise. Just that. The Samaritan crossed the road and gave help to someone who needed it. Who's my neighbor? The lawyer asked. Who is it I'm compelled and forced and required to help? If I must love my neighbor, well, who is it? Did you ever notice that Jesus didn't actually answer his question? 
I've heard a number of sermons on the Good Samaritan, and most of them have tried to answer the lawyer's question, who is my neighbor? But Jesus didn't. Jesus didn't bother answering that question. Instead, he told the story, and then he said, which of the three was the neighbor to the injured man? The priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan? See, the question isn't, who is my neighbor? The question is, am I a neighbor? Am I loving my neighbor as much as I love myself? That's the question. And the response is, go and do that. I haven't said anything terribly profound so far, have I? The simplicity of all of this is kind of insulting. Surely we have to go a little bit deeper, Jesus. Surely we need some sort of robust theology of something or other before we embark on going out to work in the field. I wouldn't blame us for thinking that way. We come by that honestly. Many of us have been embedded in a corner of the church where faithfulness and obedience have always been defined as affirming a list of doctrines or propositions about God and ourselves. And then as long as we gave assent to this acceptable teaching and followed some moral rules, then out pops a faithful, healthy Christian and out pops a healthy church. Just sort of magic and Jesus' little 60-second sermon warns those of us with all the right doctrine that that can very quickly amount to empty words. So better go out to the field and work. The words of the gospel must be performed. Words become actions. Heroes become, hearers rather, become doers. If our faith isn't performed in the world, it isn't faith, at least not the Christian faith. The test of our worship is whether or not We'll go out into the field, whether or not we'll cross the road. It's simple. It's basic. It's so simple, it's almost to the point of requiring a certain naivete. I came across a short story in the New Yorker, thanks to my personal supplier of the New Yorker magazine over here. By the way, I don't have mine for today, Richard. I noticed. The uh, short story was entitled Yogurt Days, and in it, the character Anna reflects on the life of her mother, who was so singularly focused on working out in Jesus' field <clears throat> that nothing, not even the high probability that she's naive, and has no clue of what's actually going on with people, will stop it from doing this work. It's a fascinating little detail. When Anna was in middle school, 
Her mother would take her along as she ran errands for anyone and everyone who needed anything. One day, in a panic, she called Anna inside and said, help me gather up these groceries from our pantry, and they started throwing cans and loaves of bread and just anything she could find and put them in bags and ran out to the station wagon and went over to a dilapidated house where inside smelled of mold and urine. Greeted at the door by a toddler in nothing more than stiff, swollen diapers. They delivered the food. They spent some time with them. And as they were driving away, the mother stopped the car in order to get control of herself. And not too many weeks later, they all stood beside a very small casket. In it, that toddler who had had cancer. When Anna was eight years old, a prostitute came to live with them outside in an addition pool house kind of place. And as she stood outside one day having a conversation with Nan, the sex worker, she told the young girl, you have an angel for a mother. She's stupid about practical things like money, like how people live, and how stuff gets done. Someday you'll realize it, and you'll think she's the dumbest person in the world. <clears throat> and then you'll remember what I said. She's a saint. When Nan left a few days later, she took their antique silverware, most of her father's whiskey collection, and her mother's rings. And apparently they didn't miss any of it, really. Nothing illustrated this myopic devotion of this mother more than the story of Benjamin. For years, she would take Anna across Phoenix just to take this man his frozen yogurt. It was the only thing he could really enjoy during the chemotherapy treatments. And one day they were joined by a couple of the mother's friends, and when they arrived, there was an intense discussion about whether they were really allowed to baptize Benjamin in his bathtub. And while they were in the other room debating, Benjamin admitted privately to the 12-year-old girl that all of this was just a show to please those women in that other room. He hadn't repented and he didn't need any of it. But they loved him. They wanted him to do this more than anything in the world and so he acquiesced. Benjamin told the girl, be good to your mom. She's clueless, but she's good. Anna's mother has turned 80. Her phone calls are always about all the work she's doing for God. She asks what Anna's doing. I tell her about the homeless woman on 3rd Avenue who lives in a tent because the shelter is full. How, before the recent cold snap, I took her a propane heater, enough propane to last two weeks, and a bus pass, good for the rest of the year. Also some cookies. I'm so proud of you, she says, being the hands and feet of Christ like that. 
in the sense that Anna is torn by her mother's naivete on the one hand and her intense devotion to blessing people on the other intensifies as the, as the article, as the story goes along. Anna says, last week during one of our phone calls, I asked my mother what she remembered about the yogurt days. That man loved frozen yogurt, she said. I was the only one who brought it to him. He wanted nothing to do with the Bible, but I just kept showing up. And then, one day, he just decided. I remember that day, I said. That's right, you were there, weren't you? Not for the actual baptism, I said. You should have seen him after, she said. Lit up like an angel. Sometimes I want to scream, Anna says. Sometimes I think, yes, a saint, my mother. Which of these two sons did the father's will? Well, it was the one who said all the wrong things 